I'd like to acknowledge the Darul Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which this has been written and recorded. I wish to pay my respects to the elders past and present, and send my apologies for the continuing atrocities that have taken place to the land and people. I'd also just like to start, I guess, by saying welcome to Penguin Siege Productions. As always, we're trying our best to become one of the top names in the Penguin podcasting game, and as such, I'd like to thank every one of you listeners who can help us achieve this goal. And with that all done, onto the podcast. Welcome to James Harden and the Downfall of Capitalism, the prelude. So I know, politics and sport, really, is just the best we can do in the boredom of quarantine. Well, I'm sorry to say that despite the mini-school crossover in audiences, yes, yes it is. However, through my research, I must say I found it can be very interesting to look at why some people seem to absolutely hate the idea of politics and sport. Seems to be one of the more interesting dichotomies right now why the exact same people who seem to so fervently defend the enlightened ideal of freedom of speech also get so outrageously offended when an athlete or sports star uses their platform for a political message. To be charitable, perhaps it's due to the fact that a lot of these people believe that all voices should be equal and that no person should gain an unfair sway in the marketplace of ideas due to an unrelated skill set. However, reality seems to be, or at least what I can glean from my own experience is, that most people simply don't want politics to ruin their night off, usually saying that it is their time to relax, that sport is an escape from the grind of the world we live in, and they don't want their few peaceful hours of enjoyment on a Sunday afternoon to be stripped away just because some bad apricot shot someone, or because some school a hundred miles away had a shooting, or a mosque had a hate killing in a different country. Fine, all the clothes these sports stars are wearing is built on the backs of slave labour and the Australian bushfires may have been prevented with proper funding. All the coronavirus pandemic could have been limited with rule measures were taken and the US government has manipulated martial law to create a police state. The president has manipulated his position to get rid of crimes and climate change is going to kill all our kids. The ageing population is breaking the economy and the media sites are lying to us about the problems. The scientists and experts are all paid off by these corporations. I just don't care. I just want to watch the game. I get it. I just want to watch the game too. Some nights all I want to do is sit in my home and have a night free of the pressure of knowing that I haven't helped enough, that my contributions aren't enough. But when I do finally get that free minute, enough time to sit down in my rental property and watch the game I love, I remember, sport isn't some magical escape from society. Sport is society. It is a mirror for what is going on in the real world, and it always has been. As one of the great modern philosophers, Albert Camus, said, All that I know most surely about morality and obligations, I owe to football. And personally, I echo this sentiment. I don't think sport should be heralded as some cheap way to push our problems out of sight. It should be a way for us all to sit back and reflect on the triumphs and failings, successes and collapses that we have in our own life, and that are happening around us all the time. Lately, however, even when I do get the time to sit down and watch some basketball, I don't even know if I enjoy what I'm seeing. And not in a superficial, my team is losing sort of way. The very sport itself seems to have lost its way. There is this lingering tension that hangs in the air, a toxic fume of arguments and flopping that erodes the competitive enjoyment from the game. Now, if none of this rings true to you, if you're enjoying yourself in your lazy Sunday afternoon, then there's really nothing more here for you. Perception is personal, after all. However... If you do see some truth in my words, then I implore you to stick around as we stare into the soul of society and ask, is the mirror broken, or are we? Part 1. 
starting the engine. Between the confusing title and cryptic metaphors, it would be very understandable if some people were pretty lost right now, so let me give you a proper introduction. Through this essay, I'm going to be analysing the career of professional basketball player James Harden, and detailing why I think his journey in the NBA represents a perfect parallel to three major failings that are stunting capitalism in the modern world. And before I carry on, I want to make two things clear from the start. Nothing in this essay is intended to impugn James Harden's person, or represent his own political opinions. I will be saying that he's boring to watch on a basketball court, but at this point that's just objective fact. Plus, as the world seems to be hinged in a hyper-polarised political dichotomy at the moment, just because I'm critiquing the current functionality of capitalism within representative democracy does not mean I'm pushing for a different economic or governmental system. Hell, if anything, this is a very traditionally conservative piece. After all, all I'm doing is looking at where small critiques and hopefully tweaks could be made to the current system we live in. Now that the boring part is all over, I thought the best way to introduce myself, as well as represent the general style this podcast will be in, would be to give a little story about myself. And don't worry, I promise it is James Harden relevant, eventually. When I was younger, and I mean properly younger, around six or seven I think I was, I invented a new car engine that ran off renewable energy. I had one notepad that I would carry everywhere with me, religiously drawing down little sketches of cars and models of parts, making up just completely random formulas to write down next to them to pretend that I'd worked out all the mechanics. If I am remembering correctly, I think the car was meant to be powered by wind energy, similar to how the wheels and batteries in a real car work, in that the faster you went, the more the turbines span, thus the more energy the car got. There might have been a fancy chain mechanism in there as well to help convert the energy, I truly can't remember now. But what I do remember was my singular obsession with completing that thing. Honestly, I still wish I had that notepad. Obviously not because it worked or anything like that, but just because... I mean, look. There is only so much nostalgia Disney Plus and reruns of Pokemon Yellow can give you, and with the way things are today, I am happy to seize whatever opportunity I can get to close my eyes and take a good dopamine trip back to 2002. Should really just buy a fresh album, actually. But anyway, to the point of my little story. When I was young, when I had first entered this world, I lived with all these lofty ideals. Dreams to invent a renewable car to help the people around me so together we could move forward on the backs of the winds of invention. But skip forward through a few decades of reality and where am I now? Driving a Mazda 3 to a pointless degree bound to the expectations of reality. And look, no shots to my peeps at Mazda. It's a good damn car. It's efficient, reliable, it actually works, always a good thing. But despite all its functionality, its practicality, it just has no ambition, no soul. So while technically my Mazda 3 works perfectly fine, gets me from my house to uni to my job to wherever to whatever, You've seen all the ads, you can drive up the steepest mountain or through a gushing river with an eagle flying overhead while you discover Bigfoot and enlist his help to save the pandas. It doesn't matter, that's not the issue. The issue is, to use this wonderfully convenient machine, there is a small, incy-wincy tiny trade-off buried in the fine print. That every day I use it, it's polluting the atmospheric shell that protects all life on Earth, drowning the future generations. James Harden is the Mazda 3 of the NBA, an efficient and effective basketball player whose players become so twisted by the culture of winning that he sucks the life and fun out of the games he is in, polluting the entire NBA with his soulless style of play. 
Is it a bit harsh to compare James Harden's playstyle to the global crisis of climate change? Maybe. However, with all honesty, I can sit back and say I would prefer to spend my night staring into the abyss of existential dread than watch another game of Harden dribbling the ball through his legs for 22 seconds before he bricks a five-step step back and gets three three-throws because he hit his defender in the face. Okay, in the interest of full transparency, I'm not exactly a Rockets fan, and as such you can tell that I'm probably about as fair and balanced as Fox News when it comes to Harden's playstyle. However, I do want to reiterate that I don't think Harden is some evil Scrooge McDuck plotting to steal happiness and hope from little Timmy the Spurs fan. I think he's just a dude who saw a failing in the way NBA games are refereed, and decided to take advantage of it to win. Which is why in the majority of this video I'm not trying to hate on James Harden. I'll instead be trying to examine and analyse his overarching career, from the time he stepped into the NBA until the bubble. Because love or hate him, often overlooked nowadays is how fascinating and crazy the rise of James Harden is. He went from a scrutinised draft pick to a celebrated bench role player on an up-and-coming team to a hated scoring machine that is spearheading the modern game, which truly is one hell of a turn of events, and at least in my eyes makes Harden one of the most interesting figures in all of sport today. Before I carry on, I'll introduce a little bit of structure into this rant and explain properly who James Harden is for anyone who happened to click onto this and doesn't know. James Harden, aka The Beard, is a professional basketball player with the Houston Rockets. He is a perennial all-star, superstar, scoring champ, and even a one-time MVP of the NBA. Also a one-time six-man of the year, but I'll be touching on that in just a second. James Harden has been able to achieve these accolades due to his unique playstyle. A playstyle which relies on foul hunting, accentuating or making up contact, long, isolated possessions which stagnate the offense and overall game an incredibly high ratio of threes and high usage rate on the ball, and of course, what unlocked it all, his 2 plus 2 equals 2.5 step step back. Really, it's just a manipulation of the NBA's gather step rule, but I'll exaggerate for fun. Due to these factors, James Harden has become an infamous and controversial figure amongst the NBA community, who often has two arguments that follow his name around. The first one being, he's boring to watch, versus you just don't appreciate his craftsmanship. And the second, he fades in the playoffs and you can't win with his style. Verse, he was a Chris Paul injury away from winning a championship. While these can be very interesting arguments, and I will be commenting on them in depth later, for the purpose of the overall podcast, I'm not really interested in which side of these arguments are right. What I'm interested in is why we are having the arguments in the first place. How can a sport that has been around for decades suddenly produce such an enigma? What has Harden done to make such a controversial style of play become so prominent? And what role does the NBA itself have in forming the player we see today? And I'll throw one in for you. What does his playstyle have to do with the downfall of capitalism and corrupting the soul of Western society? I'm going to put out a little bit of foreshadowing and say that I may conclude that people shouldn't blame Harden for taking advantage of his position, but should question the system, aka the NBA, that gave him an unfair advantage to begin with. Now I'm sure you're all jumping up and down of anticipation, but we're safety first here on this podcast, so for now, I'm going to have to ask that you all keep your hands and feet firmly within the cart and hold on tightly, because the wind is sweeping down the plane and blowing us all the way back to good old Oklahoma. Before the beard became a superstar selling tickets for the Houston Rockets, 
James Harden was the third pick in the 2009 draft, with hopes of being a helping hand for the then up-and-coming Oklahoma City Thunder. Now, being taken with the third pick comes with its own set of expectations. It's not as though James came into the league as a complete underdog. He was expected to be a productive player, with a long career and hopefully someone who could contribute to winning on a championship team. However, when you look at the context of that pick and reread a lot of the draft analysis around it, even the optimists were not projecting James to be anything near the MVP and, and multi-time scoring champion he has become. And trust me, most people were not optimists. At the time of his draft, a lot of arguments raged against Harden in the media. Many saw him as a reach above other prominent prospects such as Ricky Rubio or Steph Curry. This was because, coming into the league, Harden wasn't perceived as a good enough shooter off the dribble or against contestion to earn his top spot in the draft. While even in college he could always get to the rim and had great numbers for at-rim finishing, many worried about this part of his game diminishing too, as being a below-average athlete for the NBA mixed with a subpar off-the-dribble shot creator could allow for solid defences to completely take away the one part of his game, his driving game, that had offensive potency. He also took major hits for having lacklustre effort and drifting in and out of games. But no matter the hits, these limiting factors didn't scare off Thunder GM Sam Presti. Through the draft process, he was tantalised by Harden's strengths and sold him to the organisation as a good catch-and-shoot player who had a mentality that would allow him to come off the bench and play with their other stars. In fact, according to NBA pundit Bill Simmons, Sam Presti originally took Harden, not for his potential upside, but for his fit, where because of his team-centric mentality and drifting potential, he was assessed to be a great complementary piece to franchise cornerstone Kevin Durant. And at the time, that was just who they needed. Someone with great offensive talent, but who didn't need to be the star of his own team. With hindsight, all of this is very ironic when you consider that he has become the highest usage rate player in the NBA, along with his fellow OKC and now Houston Rockets teammate Russell Westbrook and that he was able to have such a high usage rate due to his ability to excel in isolated situations, which in turn is possible thanks to his ability to create off the dribble and shoot contested threes. Plus, I would feel neglect if I didn't mention that yes, Harden did translate to become a very good driver. Through his career, Harden's perimeter shot creation has helped open up his driving lanes despite his athletic shortcomings. And without trying to get too bogged down in the weeds of what makes an effective offensive player, this happens because his defender has to ensure to stay connected to Harden in fear of the three-bomb, allowing James to step through his defender and seal him on his hip, giving Harden a lane to the basket or priming his defender for a reaching foul, and very often both. Also, I'm sorry if you got this far and thought this would start to become streamlined, but I just need to have a small side tangent, because a lot of people praise Presti for nabbing Durant and then hitting on Westbrook and Harden. However, although yes, they are undoubtedly good picks for their position, hell they are all MVPs, he did manage to grab the literal two highest usage rate players in the league, when what they were trying to do was build around Kevin Durant, which, at least from my memory, is one of the worst mismanagements of personnel I've seen in a minute. And all of this becomes especially hilarious when you see that they were drafting for fit. Not trying to take away from Harden or Westbrook, they are great players, but I'm just saying, could you imagine if they had drafted Kevin Love and Steph Curry? Durant, Curry, Love would have been the most insanely balanced offense ever. Now, if you're a long-time basketball or Oklahoma City fan, I know what you're thinking. Those Scott Brook teams? The ones that insisted on getting Kendrick Perkins early post-touches and essentially kicked Kevin Durant out of town so he could play a better brand of basketball? 
that's the teams that would have invented pace and space. And I see your point. There's only so much creation and spacing that can happen if your basketball mantra is, eh, screw it, set another pin down for Kevin and ISO him. However, I would like to remind people that through those years, from 2011 to 14, the Oklahoma City Thunder was always in the top 5 of offensive rating, potentially due to the fact that, as Harden is showing us now, if you get the top scorers in the NBA to rotate isolated possessions, it's probably not that bad an offense. Yes, they would have defensive liabilities, which would have been accentuated with the modern emphasis on pick and roll and switch hunting, but personally I don't even care. Curry, Love, Kevin Durant, Serge Barker, whoever else. The size, the spacing, the shot creation, all of it would have been ridiculous. Between your choice of Love or Durant, they could have hunted any matchup they wanted easily off a screen. But what that's just saying, you're sick of pick and rolls and want Durant to post up at the elbow? Boom, off-ball screen between Curry and Love. Is Curry dancing at the top? We'll have Love set a 45 pin down and dive to the board. It would have been utterly unstoppable. But I'm not here to be too harsh. You could play this game with every team. It could have also ended up being Ricky Rubio and Eric Gordon or something. Which, now I say, isn't terrible. Definitely better defensively than both my scenario and what they got. Plus, Rubio playing off the space of Durant and Gordon might have really unlocked his passing game a bit. Because we have to remember, early Gordon before his injuries in New Orleans was a bucket. I mean, that dude was the centre of a Chris Paul trade for a reason. You know what, screw it, I'm doubling down. The top picks of those drafts were solid players, sorry Johnny Flynn, so don't praise Presty too much for locking into good picks, one of which, he clearly didn't know what he had because he traded Harden away. Okay, segue officially over, and conveniently back to discussing why Presty accepted trading James Harden. Yes, I know it was mainly pressure from the owners, but he did choose a Barker over him, so it still counts in my books. In Harden's first season, he was... fine? He didn't set the world on fire, but he did prove Presti's draft analysis right, and showed that he could play off Durant, contribute to a solid team, and space the floor as a nice complementary piece. In his first year, Harden was able to put up solidly efficient shooting splits of 42, 38, and 80 which, combined with a strong 9.9 points a game and 1.8 assists, enabled James to net himself a very respectable all-rookie second team, amongst other timeless names like the aforementioned Johnny Flynn, Jonas Jurebko, and the rebound got himself, Dijon Blair. However, even back in his first year, Harden was a step behind Curry's first-team all-rookie, and Tyreek Evans' monstrous 25-5 rookie season which earned him the Rookie of the Year. He was also overshadowed by the explosive scoring of Mr. 55 points in three quarters Brandon Jennings, and I suppose I should mention the other first team all rookie, Taj Gibson. Which, when you look at it, why not Taj? He was another solid rookie, contributing on a fellow up and coming team, filling his role nicely. In fact, both Taj and Harden had very comparable seasons. Taj was able to put up 9 points and 7.5 rebounds on 49% shooting. Hell, as far as rookies go, he was essentially the power forward version of James Harden. Which is funny, because could you imagine Taj Gibson having the success that James Harden has had? What would that even have to look like? Would Taj have to turn himself into Draymond Green with far better post-up and three-point game? Maybe he could have become the ultimate 24-12 version of David West. I don't even know. I can't imagine how Taj would become an MVP and not to mention multi-time scoring champ. But... I guess what I'm really trying to reiterate here is exactly how crazy it is that James Harden did become those things. I simply can't stress enough how unusual his path to stardom was. From being on the all-rookie second team with three people who are now out of the league in Jonas Urebko, 
to MVP. It's insanity. I know, I know. It's all well and good to scream about how unlikely his rise was, but you're right. I don't need to throw out stupid comparisons and theories about how Harden became this player. He did it. We have had his entire career play out in front of us, so I suppose what I should be detailing is, how did his game lift from its simple beginnings to such an extraordinary level? And if you ask me and Taj Gibson, there is really only one simple thing that separated the careers of these two bright NBA prospects. Opportunity. Okay, not really. Harden is better. But as with everything, opportunity had its role to play. Harden's second year was always better than Taj's, and it's in no small part because the player ahead of James Harden, Jeff Green, got traded away from the Oklahoma City Thunder, which meant James could step into a bigger and better role. But when Taj's Chicago Bulls signed all-star power forward Carlos Boozer to pair with Derrick Rose, Taj unfortunately stumbled back. Harden gained 4 minutes a game, his points jumped from 9.9 to 12.2, he got more 3 throws, his assists rose, heck he even managed to make his turnovers drop. Plus, his shooting numbers were more efficient in all major splits, 2-pointers, 3-pointers and 3-throw. Taj on the other hand lost 5 minutes a game, his points regressed to 7.1 a game, rebounds dropped to 5.7. As his stats dropped, his role became solidified, he was typecast as an energy guy off the bench, a tough, undersized power forward who could give you some good rebounds, solid help defense, and maybe the occasional elbow jumper, but never someone to actively plan your game or team around. To Harden's credit, it's not enough to just be given opportunity. You do have to actually do something with it, and boy did he. Heading into both their third seasons, Bleacher Report put out an article giving predictions for the sixth man of the year. In first spot, our boy James Harden. They stated, it looked like James Harden could be a concrete piece in building the team's future, and it wouldn't be a surprise to see Harden score 20 points a game as he can drive, shoot, and draw fouls consistently. And they didn't know how right they were going to be. In that season, Harden would in fact win Sixth Man of the Year, help push the Thunder all the way to the finals and begin to turn himself into a real name in the NBA. This significant jump in his game and production came again, in no small part, due to opportunity. Over his third year, his minutes flew up to 31.4 a game. His usage rate ticked up from 19.5% to 21.6%, and once again, his shooting efficiency rose even further. Harden was now shooting an astonishing 58% from 2 and 39% from 3, allowing him to net an astounding true shooting percentage of 66%, which is easily his career high and was good enough for second best in the league. With these incredible leaps, Harden's counting stats also surged upwards, skyrocketing up to 16.8 points per game, 4.1 rebounds per game, and 3.7 assists per game. But it wasn't just his numbers. Through that year, the world observed as James Harden rolled out a beautiful brand of basketball. It may be forgotten on the Reddit pages of yesteryear, but back in 2012, James Harden was becoming known as a lively, fun, somewhat eccentric up-and-comer on the Thunder a selfless six-man who let go of his own raw numbers to seize the Manu throne of ultimate third banana behind Westbrook and KD. And I have to say, the comparisons to Manu had more than superficial weight to them. He was a crafty left-hander with creative passing, crazy drives, and that sweet, sweet three-bomb, which made it all the more poetic when it was his dagger-step-back three that dispatched the Spurs from their original resurgent push back to the promised land in 2011-12. The Spurs looked simply unstoppable during those playoffs, Again, oft forgotten now, but they were going undefeated through the Western Conference. They were poised to steamroll to the finals and ruin LeBron's waning legacy. But after going up 2-0 against the Thunder, something flipped. 
The youth and athleticism of the Thunder began to overwhelm the Spurs and overpower their execution, allowing OKC to run off four games in a row. There is no doubt that Kevin Durant was the engine of that team, but Harden was the spark plug, that little extra piece that could jumpstart their offense when it was in its greatest need. And as such, it was fittingly on the back of James Harden's step-back three that OKC was able to sneak out a Game 5 win, sealing their lead in the series and eventually their championship berth. That's right. On the back of the selfless play and off-ball movement of James Harden, a new big three was about to put its stamp on the league. The Spurs may have trademarked the beautiful game, but back then Oklahoma had more than just a sprinkle of wonder. Sure, the numbers weren't there, but James was a freeing presence on the court. He not only could dissect defences, but divert them, allowing not him, but his predecessors to manifest the greatest versions of themselves. Then all of a sudden, after their first final trip, it was over. He was traded. Thanks to a $6 million disagreement on a four-year, $54 million offer, Oklahoma City Thunder traded James Harden, Daquan Cook, and LeVar Haywood to the Rockets for Kevin Martin, Jeremy Lamb, and the picks that would become Stephen Adams and Mitch McGarry. After this trade, OKC's playstyle slowly regressed to grind it down, ISO possessions, and they would never make the finals again, eventually causing their star piece, Kevin Durant, to leave for free agency, leaving them in this hell of relative mediocrity. Here it comes. The big bad wolf of capitalism finally shows its ugly head. To be fair, James Harden didn't get worse. Once he got traded, his opportunity, numbers, and fame all jumped up another five levels, paving the way for his MVP play. However, the pain felt from this trade has nothing to do with the harm it caused to James Harden, but to the NBA and Oklahoma City communities to which he used to belong. Heck, all you have to do is look at sweatshop workers to understand that just because capitalism isn't causing harm to those within its own system doesn't mean it isn't causing harm. Actually, you could argue that companies seeking to maximise their short-term profit via overseas production has weakened the economies that they come from, and I suppose that could constitute harm, but that is neither here nor there, because honestly, I simply haven't researched enough in that area to make an intelligent comment, so look, forget I said anything. Instead, the analogy I will be using is, drumroll please, Australian universities. Odd topic, niche topic, and what I assume most people don't know too much about so I'll try my best to keep it brief and hopefully entertaining. During the 70s, there was a public surge to make tertiary education in Australia free, and thus accessible to the working and middle classes. In 1974, under the Whitlam government, like most progressive things in this country, free tertiary education became a reality. Suddenly, with an influx of students and funding, Australian universities took a leap forward in their productivity and perception, leading to universities such as the Australian National University, University of Sydney and University of Melbourne becoming staples in the top 50 universities of the world. Which isn't too bad for a small island. Just like with James Harden, recognition begot opportunity. And within the world of universities, this translated into degrees from a top Australian universities becoming prestigious in the international job market, which led to many international students seeking to come over to Australia to get their degrees. However, this boom in education worked a little too well for Australia, and the constant stream of Australians heading to their local universities became so large that the government didn't believe it had the funds to continue to pay for its own students. Thus, in 1989, the government ceased outright paying for tertiary education and instead transitioned into student hex debt, a system in which students cover their fees once they reached a certain income threshold. It was a tough hit for universities, and one that kept on rolling. In 1974, the Commonwealth provided up to 90% of university income, 
but by 2010, that number had eroded to just 42%, and has recently got as low as 20% among our major research universities. The issues were becoming apparent for all to see. An entire generation had gone through university, and so now, whether you wanted to or not, to compete in the workplace of Australia, you had to get a degree. So, what are Australian universities to do? Funding was dropping. Lecturers and researchers needed more money. Classes were getting bigger than ever before. And did I mention funding was dropping? Well, the answer more or less fell into their laps. Luckily for our fine Australian institutions, it wasn't just Australians filling up those classes. It was also all these international students who had heard about the quality of education here and who would be guaranteed a job if they got a degree from Australia. Plus, one small thing that I should mention. With these international students, they have to pay more fees on average for their degree than local students, and they have to pay it upfront. So throughout the 90s and 2000s, Australian universities were still riding on the goodwill that they had gained internationally through the 80s, which was made possible due to a boom in funding they received in the 70s. Nowadays, thanks to policy changes which have come through in 1997 and 2005, universities are able to further capitalise on the funding coming from international students, along with other private means, which you would think could help keep them in good stead. After all, sure they lost revenue from government grants, but wasn't it replaced by international students? Well, yes and no. It is true that from 1990 onwards, Australia has aggressively marketed towards international students, which has meant that as of 2014, they account for conservatively at least 17.5% of all university funding, which is probably even higher now, as international students accounted for under $5 billion in total revenue fees in 2014, compared to over $9 billion in total revenue fees now. But just because all this money is coming in doesn't mean it has all been distributed to the university itself. I want to interject at this point to say that this analogy is being drawn in order to compare two questions between the James Harden trade and Australian universities. Who is benefiting from these decisions, and what happens when disaster hits? The first one is easy to answer. Those at the top. The winner of the James Harden trade was the owners and Harden, those whose decision it was. The owners saved money on tax, and James Harden made an extra $6 million, and many more in his future contracts thanks to being the face of his own team. Did they rob the city of Oklahoma the chance for their new team to win a championship? Yes. But when it comes to these decisions, that's who gets hurt. The communities. Now, it may be in a superficial and ultimately harmless way in the NBA, but for the people who rely on their universities, it isn't. I alluded to the fact earlier that just because the money was coming in with international students doesn't mean it's getting spent, and that's kind of true. You see... When the style of funding shifted from government grants to private revenue, the clever people in charge of universities, the administrators and chancellors, saw that they had been placed in a perfect situation to cease increasing investment in research and facilities, and instead cut themselves a nice slice of the pie. You see, to the perception of the Australian people, universities had suddenly lost a substantial amount of funding, so it would seem only natural if the universities couldn't afford the new building or to retain as many full-time staff or to pay for decent food in their colleges. This attitude bled into the fabric of universities, so much so that right now Australian universities are at the bottom of global rankings for staff-to-student ratios, while having some of the highest levels of casualisation within their institutions. This is all confounded by the fact that those at the top of the universities have obscenely high salaries that completely ballooned since the 90s with many vice-chancellors making over a million dollars per year and the vice-chancellors at institutions such as the University of Sydney and University of Melbourne both netting over $1.5 million. So once again, 
Who gets hurt when we promote the mindset of individual short-term benefit? The general public, and, in this case, the younger generation. To be fair, and balanced, Australian universities do still hold a good reputation internationally, and for a small nation we still have more universities listed in the world's top 500 than the UK, US or Canada. Plus, for my own conscience, I should say that I have made some personal projections with the shifting percentages of allocated funding through Australian universities, but that is because most universities are incredibly untransparent with the precise amount of money they receive, often refusing to declare it so that the staff can't gain leverage in contract negotiations. So I don't want to seem like I'm just cherry-picking stats to scream that the apocalypse is now, and I will admit that this should be taken with a small grain of salt, but look, if any universities wish to refute this, then by all means, show your books. That aspect aside, universities have become objectively worse than they were in the 80s and 90s. The issues are just compiling themselves as well. Spending on higher education is currently at 1.6% of our GDP, which is about average within the OECD. However, for a system that relies on excellence to fund itself, average isn't good enough. Full-time employment four months after finishing your degree has plummeted from 85.2% in 2008 all the way down to 72.9% in 2018, which again, isn't good enough. Funding we have relies on our ability to sell to international students the reality that you can get a job with a degree from Australian universities, which is ceasing to be the case. And if that is no longer the case, and international students begin to leave, these numbers will do nothing but drop, and leave the next generation of Australians undereducated and without the ability to gain full-time employment. Similarly, if you don't invest in raw talent and trade away an eventual MVP and chance at a championship, your current MVP will lose faith in his team and will eventually leave for greener pastures. Yes, I'm looking at you, KD. The second question we have to answer is how do these actions set us up for a day when disaster strikes? Surprisingly, not well. I don't know if people have noticed recently, but the global pandemic has somewhat interfered with international travel. This includes international students, meaning that not only will our economy be directly hit, it will be rocked further when our universities stand to lose near a quarter of their funding. In a sense, it is lucky that our institutions have such a high level of casualization because hey, it's pretty easy to fire your casual workers. But with university staffs already on demand, this means that lecturers are now placed in the impossible position of taking on the entire tutorial burden of their class while still having to continue their actual research with the less accessible funding. Then, if our universities collapse under this pandemic, it will be impossible for them to rebuild to the previous standards they had, as the incentives that used to lure in international students are no longer valid. Some may find it harsh to attack a system or institution based on what's happening in the middle of a disaster. However, if your system can only run in the good times, and is only set up for the perfect situations, then I'm sorry, but it isn't a good system. Hell, we've already had two global financial crises in my life, and I'm 25. At this point, if you aren't set up for a recession, you're just being plain negligent. The same level of exposure unfortunately took down OKC. The year after they traded Harden, they were still a great team. With Martin filling in the six-man role and KD taking a step up, they arguably had a better regular season than with Harden there the year before. But they no longer had any wriggle room for when adversity struck. So when, in the first round, against James Harden's Rockets, Westbrook had a severe leg injury, they went bust. A fluke accident to be sure, but the unfortunate reality is that fluke accidents happen, and only long-term contingency planning and investment can help you when they do. Perhaps if they had kept Harden, he could have stepped into Westbrook's shoes, filled his role, and became a player we all know with his former team, not against them. But we can never know if that would have been enough to deliver OKC a championship. 
because the owner selected short-term personal gain over the needs of the organisation. To conclude this segment, I want to move away from the more traditionally, hopefully somewhat convincing arguments, just for a second, so that I can illustrate my feelings on the matter. Because as much as we like to hide behind rationality and facts, it is important to recognise that we all have emotional stake in the game, and sometimes the best way to stay neutral is to show that we're partisan. To be blunt, I don't think our systems deal well with selfishness. When you put people in a position of power, or authority, or ownership, or whatever, and then allow a narrative to spread that life is a competition, which is won by helping yourself, you give these people a reason to hurt others. I've always had a gripe with the argument that socialism doesn't work because people won't be incentivized to work under a system where you'll be given things for free. To me, this is kind of a misunderstanding of how basic modern socialist principle works. You generally want every worker within their respective industry to get fair pay for their job and hours, not everyone to get the same wage. Of course, there is often more room for social welfare within socialist circles, but, hot take, I also don't really think compassion is too bad a thing to promote in a state. Look, semantics of socialism aside, I mean, gosh, personally I'm in the centre politically anyway. The real argument I'm making here is that if you really think people are inherently incentivized by selfish desire, then why would a capitalistic system work? Once you have someone in a position of economic control, they now have a free reign to dictate what happens based on their personal interest. Which, as we have seen over and over again, from the MBA, to universities, to global warming, to banks, often has no connection to the interest of the society. In Australia, it isn't the vice-chancellors or their families who will be hurt. They've been sitting on a million dollar salary for years. When the universities collapse, who is going to be able to have the ability to send their kids elsewhere and get the next best education? It's them. They have already gained what they need from these institutions, so it is no longer in their best interest for them to continue. And look, if you need a less theoretical description of how disaster only hurts those on the bottom, I will point you over to the fact that during the COVID pandemic, Australian billionaires have seen their combined wealth raised by 52.4%, which I probably don't need to tell you is well above average, and well, well above that of the normal citizen. But let's not get bogged down in facts. This is a think piece after all. So to transfer my analogy to a more general format, a lot of people state that we need competition within the economy because that can help to balance any focusing of power. The freer the market, the freer the people, I suppose would be the usual tagline. This, to me, tends to be an oxymoronic way to look at freedom, though. Often in our modern times, freedom is depicted as choice, i.e. I should have the freedom to choose to wear a mask. I should have the freedom to choose if I want a profitable profession that will allow me healthcare. I should have the freedom to choose to kneel during the national anthem. One of these is not like the others. Three guesses which? But seriously. Choice, however, while a part of freedom, is just a little tack-on to real freedom, which is action. This is because choice means nothing without the ability to act behind it. To introduce another French philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, he had a lot to say on this topic, one of which was his concept of radical freedom, which is to say that in any situation, ever, we always have a level of freedom. We always have a choice. But this does not mean that we are truly free. Well, at least I would argue. Someone such as Sartre might disagree with me for well, convoluted reasons, but he's dead now, so we can push past that. One of Sartre's prime examples for radical freedom was a thought experiment involving a prisoner at a concentration camp. In it, Sartre explains that every day, every minute, the prisoner had freedom, as at any point he had choices. The prisoner could choose which brick to lay, 
Did he want to work faster or get whipped? Did he want to make a run for it or die? All these things are choices. Now they are made under duress, that is to be sure, but ultimately they are made by the prisoner and thus he is free. Or at least he is free if we agree with Sartre's radical view and take choice as our standard for freedom. But when we talk about liberty, freedom and the pursuit of happiness, we shouldn't be bound by the extremities of choice. We should be searching to promote as much opportunity for action as we can, so that, to carry on with the example, this person would never have to be in a concentration camp, and they could instead choose what work they wish to do throughout their life, instead of being forced to choose between torture or death. Universal healthcare seems to be a big talking point in America over the last decade. A lot of people rally against it because they see it as an affront to this sense of choice, quoting that everyone should be able to choose what insurance they can get. This, however, is promoting a negative freedom. And for people who don't know what that is, a negative freedom is the abdication for a choice or action that hinders other freedoms. The classic example would be hate speech, or slavery for the extreme version. Someone fighting for their right to own slaves, for this example, is technically trying to preserve their own freedom to have that option, but by you having that choice, you are intrinsically restricting the positive freedom of others to make their own choices about what they wish to do with their life and freedom. Healthcare is kind of the same. You are promoting a choice by saying we should be able to pick our own health insurance, but that choice intrinsically leads to the death or severe financial burden of others who can't afford that option, which obviously stops them from taking other positive freedoms in their life. Of course, the current status then further favours the wealthy and promotes their access to opportunity, and on and on it goes. But anyway... I've spent enough time on this tangent, and honestly, I've talked enough about what the people on top do to those around them. It's time we look at what the common person and the communities have to say about the stars who sit on top of their society. Or at least it will be time in part two. Woo! Self-promotion. Go check it out after this.